0: Matthew chapter 26, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 16. Matthew chapter 26, 6 through 16. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, and we'll begin in verse 6. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for uh, burial. Truly I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him uh, to you? And they weighed thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We have these two different narratives, and I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds so that we can understand your word. Father, if there's someone here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior, that today can be that day of salvation. For other of us, we might find ourselves in one or the two illustrations, and I pray that your spirit would uh, convict us of what things might need to be changed in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Why are, are some people loyal? Why are some people loyal? And I mean really, really loyal. Like, like loyal like on, on November eighteenth, nineteen 1978. Jim Jones encouraged a group of people to go down to Guyana. And on that day, including himself, uh, 900 people died. 900 people. They drank some of the Kool-Aid. He ended up shooting himself in the head. What, what makes that type of loyalty? Or what makes a person disloyal? Uh, we've seen in, in history people who have been disloyal. Uh, Marcus Brutus, uh, he betrayed Julius Caesar. He was a senator. and he, How was it that he uh, became such close friends with, with a Caesar? How, how was it that he was had those conversations, had that... Uh, interaction with him was so close to him and then willing to be the first one to drive the dagger into his back how how does this happen we see these extremes per se and we might say well i'm neither on that extreme that i'm willing to drink the kool-aid and and i'm not this person over here that betrays i'm kind of somewhere in the middle but here we get this narrative there we see these two opposites now, historically, Jesus has been talking about his crucifixion. We, we saw that already, that he said in verse 2 that after two days uh, comes the Passover and the Son of Man is going to be handed over uh, for crucifixion. They're, they're anticipating that. We also went into the courtroom, uh, the kind of the courtyard of the high priest, and there was a conversation that was going on there. A conversation about how they could betray Jesus. How could they arrest him? How could they get him and then kill him? And, and they wanted to use a, a, some type of tricky method of doing it because they couldn't get anything really for what he had done wrong. And they decided because of fear of the people that they would just kind of wait, they would hold on. Uh, it didn't mean that their heart changed. It, it didn't mean that they realized that they were doing something morally evil. It just showed that they really had a fear of the people. And so, given the proper opportunity, they would act. And that's how many of us are. Many of the sins that uh, we say the world commits and we have not committed usually is because we haven't had the opportunity to do those sins. But put in the same situation, at the same time, many of us would think that we would be Joseph or Daniel, but... Probably not. Now, as we're looking at this text, there's going to be a certain temptation that you're going to have. And, and that is that this text gives a lot of gaps. There's a lot of information that we would love to have, that we would love to answer all these different types of questions about this text. And the temptation would be then to, to look at the other Gospels and start comparing and contrasting and try to answer all the questions what, that we could give. But that temptation, what it ends up doing is it ends up developing a, a new gospel. We'll call it the gospel according to N, right? Uh, because it's, it's what we've been able to gather all together. We, we've put in all the text together, and we can now see kind of a tapestry of what this event, what this dinner looks like. The temptation of doing that, of gathering all this stuff together and getting the gospel according to N, is that the gospel according to N is not inspired. It's not. The text that we have before us is inspired, which means that there was an author that had a certain intent, and he decided to include certain things and decided to hold back on other things. So we have to look at this text. Now, you're one the, you might have some uh, references to other texts in your Bible, and you're going to want to look at those. Don't look at those, because we want to interpret this text to understand what is the author's intent of, of telling us this information, not including other information but this information what's the purpose of it and what we're going to be looking at today is that Christians must reject using God for personal gain and live with a reckless abandonment for God that, that's what we're going to be looking at today that Christians must reject using God for personal gain and live with a reckless abandonment for God now how do we live this reckless abandonment in we live this reckless abandonment by loving and fellowshipping with those who are marginalized. Those who are marginalized. We see in verse 6 that uh, Jesus himself, that the, the was is a middle verb which has this idea that it implicates the, the subject which is Jesus. So Jesus himself was in Bethany. Now we know from... Different texts that Jesus visited Bethany several times. Matthew chapter 21, 17 through 19, you remember that he had gotten to Jerusalem, They had cried Hosanna, then he went to spend the night in Bethany. On his way back to Jerusalem, there was that fig tree that looked like it should have had fruit, but it had no fruit. and he cursed it and it weathered up instantly. He was walking from Bethany back to Jerusalem. Bethany was kind of um, two miles away from Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and there he was uh, coming, he's in Bethany. We know that Bethany has some friends of his. At least it has Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So he's there in Bethany. And he's in, or at, as it's translated here, but it's the same word that he's in Bethany, he's in the home of Simon. And not just any Simon, but Simon the leper, and that's not like he had a disguise of a leper on. That's Simon as in leprosy. Um, okay, you guys didn't get that at all. It just kind of fell flat right there, didn't it? Are we awake? We're, we're okay? <laughs> um, he's that Simon the leper. Now, can you imagine having that nickname? Can, can you imagine people being like, uh, hey, there's, there's Simon the leper. Hey, leper, how you doing? Uh, can you imagine that staying with you and, and being with you? Most commentators would say, well, he right at this point at this moment he, he probably doesn't have leprosy. I mean, how could he possibly be at home? How could he possibly be inviting other people into his home eating if he is has leprosy? Well, he could have been healed. He could have been healed a while back. We know in, in Matthew chapter 8 that uh it says that a leper came to him and bowed down before him, and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleaned." And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Could it be this guy? He's come down from the, of, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, got done with that, and here's this guy. And Maybe it was him, so maybe this was like three years ago and now he's inviting them to eat at his home? How long has he been without the leprosy? I mean, we would want to know these type of information. Like, when did Simon get healed? Who was Simon's family? When did Simon get healed? What type of house did Simon have? And when did Simon get healed? Wouldn't we be wanting to know that? Like, is it safe to go in there? Where the leprosy was, is it safe? Shouldn't we keep some type of social distance with this? how about I just eat out here? I brought my own thing from Chick-fil-A. You guys eat in there and we'll just kind of wave. (laughs) This is fun. All right, I'm going home. He doesn't do that. He goes inside the home of this guy. This guy that everybody knows had leprosy at some point in his life. Maybe it was three years ago. Maybe he just healed him because we know that when he was in the temple courtyard, he was healing individuals. So maybe earlier that day, he heals them. He goes home and says, hey, I'm healed. Let's have a party. How long? Is is the house sanitary? Is it safe to go in? And what we see here is that Jesus loved and fellowship with the marginalized. There he is inside the home. Inside where maybe there was the sickness, maybe there was a virus. I'm not sure what that is, but he's there with it. Jesus' actions are just reckless. He's sitting at the table. They're, they're passing food. They're sitting in close contact. But what if he gets sick? The youth, Jerusalem is swelled up to four times as many people. We know from Acts chapter 8 that there was someone from Ethiopia there. So someone from Africa. People would have come from Europe, from the Middle East, from Asia, to come to worship at the Passover. Can you imagine this thing getting spread everywhere? It's kind of reckless of Jesus. Has he no concept of public health? Oh, it's, it gets worse, though. Because Jesus took his disciples to love and to fellowship with the marginalized as well. Now we know from verse 8 that the disciples are present. It seems one thing that if Jesus is deciding to kind of be reckless and kill himself by having this leprosy, maybe he should have done that by himself but he takes his disciples into the home to eat as well. The point of having a rabbi was not just to learn theoretical knowledge. You followed him so that you could model what he does. You see how he interacted with people. You see how he talked, and and then you would mimic that because you were his disciple. So all this that he's doing, they're understanding this is what they're supposed to be doing as well to be involved with the marginalized. Jesus is expecting his disciples to love and fellowship with those on the edge. Now, your temptation might be right now at this point is to argue and say, uh, Jesus is God, and, and so he was, he was good. And, and you might want to argue and say, um, you know, uh, I have to keep myself healthy so that I can eventually then help somebody. And it's best not to try to argue this point right now. It's best to just examine your heart, to humble yourself. Given the opportunity to serve somebody with a nickname as Simon the Leper, would you do it? Would you enter his house? Would you eat the food? Or, or would you do one of those drive by groceries drop off, you know, throw it out the window, ring, off you go? What, what would we do? Jesus models here going in, sitting down, and talking. Well, as we look at this, this living reckless by loving and fellowshipping with with those who are marginalized, we see another point, which is uh, important, is that we have to abandon our treasures for a greater treasure. And that greater treasure is Christ. We must abandon our treasures for a greater treasure, and that treasure is Christ. Uh, We see there in verse 7, it says, A woman came to him. Now, the main two verbs in this uh, verse is came and poured. The rest kind of gives some other information. She came with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. Uh, This would have been probably a a little stone flask. It would have had a long neck the neck part would have been broken, and then she would have poured it over, over Jesus. He uh, it, it doesn't say how much. But we would love to know what is very expensive. Uh, in fact, this word is only used in, in, in this, this verse. It's, no, it's not used anywhere else in the whole New Testament. It, it's very expensive, very costly perfume. How costly? I mean, are we talking about Old Spice costing? Costly? Or are we talking about a little cheaper? What What is costly? Well, you can imagine something that is very precious to her. And, and she comes, and the second verb is she poured. She came and she poured. And she pours it on his head while he's reclining at the table. She, she knows exactly who he is. She can identify him. She doesn't come in wondering who in the world... Uh, Jesus is, you know, which one should I go to? You know, she knows exactly. She goes straight up to him, and and the actions is she comes up to him and she starts pouring. You can imagine a scene like that, having the debtor party. They're eating, talking, talking about the football game, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And um, in comes this lady. I mean, it's awkward, right? Here comes she. Maybe she's going to bring some food. Maybe she's got the hot sauce with her. You know, what she got? And she breaks this thing up and starts pouring it on top of Jesus. I mean, this is kind of awkward. Like, what do you do? Do you kind of like act like you're not seeing it? You know, uh, oh, there's a lady there. I didn't realize that. You know, what what do you do in this type of scenario? What, what's the protocol for what you're supposed to do? Well, what they did was, it says, but the disciples, as in Jesus' disciples, were indignant. They're angry. It's a very interesting word, this word indignant, because it's used in a couple other contexts. It's used, for example, in Matthew chapter 24. I'm sorry, 20, verse 24. And the scene is where uh, James and John's mom comes up to Jesus and asks for to have her sons on either side of of Jesus. And when the disciples heard this request, they became indignant. They were angry. They were frustrated. So this wasn't like kind of an awkward thing like, This is upsetting the the dinner party. Would you go ahead and just leave so we can continue eating? This is like they're actually upset. It's also used in Matthew 21, verse 15. It's it's used of the chief priests and the scribes. They're they're seeing all the wonderful works that Jesus is doing. They're hearing the children scream, Hosanna, son of David. And they became displeased. They're angry at the situation. And this is what the disciples of Jesus are. Now we have to wonder, like, what in the world are they upset about? Why are they so upset? What could it be that they're, uh, what has gotten them so frustrated? And they said, uh, when they saw this, why this waste? Why this waste? So they're considering somehow her actions as being a wasteful action. Now, what exactly is the waste? Was, uh, was it wasting the perfume, as in the person that received the, the perfume uh, really didn't deserve that type of costly perfume? They'd want to tread very lightly right there, wouldn't they? I mean, <laughs> to say that Jesus wasn't worth the perfume. Uh, I don't think they want to go there. They, they go a different route in saying that, oh, it could have been used... It could have been sold for a high price. What's the high price? We don't know. But a high price. You can imagine a very high price. And then money could have been given to the poor. Well, that just sounds so pious, doesn't it? I mean, that just sounds amazing. Uh, That's what he's been talking about in, in Matthew 25, that there's the sheep and goats judgment. And the sheep are the ones who are out there caring for the poor, giving water, giving food. They're clothing these individuals. I mean, they seem to be like reiterating the words that Jesus had just spoken. It seems like they got the lesson. We we could sell this and, and be able to give to the poor. Sounds so holy. It says, though, verse 10, But Jesus, aware of this, That word aware uh, has this uh, idea of of knowing, of understanding. He had an understanding that while their lips were uttering one thing, their heart was beating to another passion. And what's incredible for me at this point is that after all these years, they think they're going to trick Jesus with their piety. They they really think that they're going to somehow trick Jesus by saying one thing and he's looking at their heart. I also think about sometimes we do that, don't we? Oh, brother so-and-so, how are you doing? So glad to see you. Oh, man, that guy, is so terrible. Why did he have to come today? Can't he just watch online? Uh, sometimes we're like that. And we think that, well, God just sees our nice little outside, and he hears our words, and he doesn't know what's going on inside of my heart. But God does know. He does. And he says, why do you bother this woman? And the idea is between uh, the disciples were indignant and they're asking this and bothering this woman. The idea is that she is still present. Like they weren't being like good southerners that wait till she leaves to then start talking about you know, she's still there in the room. Like, like, just wait a minute for her to leave. They're not doing that. They're like, she's there with the, with the flask. And they're like, and, she's, and Jesus has to tell them, why are you troubled? What's bothering you? For she has done a good deed. That word good can also have the meaning of being beautiful or being useful. There's a purpose to it. What she's done is, is beautiful and very useful. And it's useful for her. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Always have the poor. This deed that she did was very good, was very useful. Now, this statement almost seems like uh, he's not caring for the poor. Like, did he just forget all this stuff about caring for the poor? And, And in a certain way, maybe the statement also alludes to maybe two types of things. Like, you can either give to God or you can give to the poor. And it's better to give to God than to give to the poor. Uh, But he's not setting that up. He's pointing out that there is something good in what she did for Jesus at this point in his life. And it says, specifically for verse 12, for when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. She did it to prepare, to, to, to get him ready for the burial. Now, Jesus has been talking about this fact that he's going to be crucified and he's going to be handed over and crucified. He said it on more than one occasion. The disciples have been present, but also with the disciples have been another group of individuals. And somehow, the disciples are eating and they seem quite normal, like it's just the thing that they're doing. And here's a lady who has received revelation, and is acting in accordance to that revelation. Which is incredible, because it just distinguishes her from the men that are there, that they should be realizing he's about to be handed over, he's going to be crucified, and they're just eating. They're picking up the pita and getting the hummus. And they're not thinking about this fact that Christ is going to be crucified. He says, uh, verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached. That word preached uh, carries this idea of making an official announcement uh, to make something known, to make a public declaration. Uh, I've heard individuals, they've tried to attribute to uh, Francis of Assisi uh, this statement. It says, preach the gospel all the time, use words if necessary. And it's a kind of debated issue because supposedly you can't find that quote made from Francis a sissy. Uh, that's not that he was a sissy. It's just his name is Francis uh, sissy. Um, that's free, for, by the way. And uh, he makes this declaration. Jesus says that this gospel is supposed to be preached. It's supposed to be declared. It's supposed to be shared. In other words, you can't just cut your yard just, just right and people are going to be like, oh, look at that yard. Why do you cut your yard so differently? Oh, because I'm a Christian. Oh! You know, No, the gospel has to be preached. It has to be proclaimed. You have to share it with people. You have to make that declaration. It can't be just something that people are just going to, why do you do that like that? Why are your hedges just so flat on the top? Oh, well, let me tell you why the hedges are so flat. No, this gospel is preached. And now this gospel, it it, it kind of confounds us a little bit because when we think about the gospel, most of us, when we share the gospel presentation, we're really not sharing about this lady. I mean, I don't know how many of us have done that where we're like going through and we're sharing about how we're all sinners and the penalty of sin is death. And there was a lady that came and she poured a flask on the person. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, like no one shares that type of gospel. So in what sense is this part of the gospel? How is this supposed to be remembered? Well, the gospel, the fact that we have all sinned, Romans 3:23 that the punishment of sin is death, Romans 6:23, and that faith in Christ's work saves us, Romans 6:23 and John 3, 16 through 18. That's just the beginning. We, we know that uh, the gospel is much, much more than just that. Remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, and he's there talking with the two individuals? He starts through the Old Testament and showing how the Old Testament is related to him. So it's not just the Gospels that Matthew, Luke, Mark, John wrote, but it's also the Old Testament points to this Gospel. And then we know that the epistles were written to churches who are Christ's body. So the Gospel is not just just that simple presentation. It's much, much more. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about this lady as she came in. On the flip side, on the flip side... We're also remembering the reaction of the disciples. Can you imagine how embarrassing it is to have that attitude? To to miss the mark, to not understand what she was doing, where Jesus says plainly what she was doing. So we see that live recklessly by loving and fellowshipping with the marginalized. We have this abandonment, abandoning your treasures for a greater treasure, and that treasure is Christ. What we see in these verses is that um, good thoughts are not always God thoughts. Good thoughts are not always God thoughts. Is it good to help the poor? Oh yeah, it's definitely good to help the poor. Jesus even said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, poor in spirit. Uh, James talks about helping the poor. Uh, But at this moment, there's something much deeper going on, something more important than necessarily helping the poor at this moment. Uh, We can get caught up in serving individuals, and we can get caught up in doing things for people that we forget to love God first and that we serve people because of our love for God. The disciples seem to have forgotten that that Jesus moves past their lips and looks into their heart and what they're thinking they're doing. Now, we can think we can try to trick God, uh, but no. He sees what's going on in our heart. Now, her gift really, uh, although it's, it, it says over and over again, that it was very costly, it was very expensive. Her gift really was nothing. And you say, well, how in the world is this gift really nothing? Well, we see a couple of interesting things about here. One is um, the, the woman's name is not mentioned. Here it says that we're supposed to um, remember her. And it says that woman has done, will also be spoken of in memory of her, but no name is included. Here's this unnamed woman gives this very costly gift. And Jesus points out specifically that this very costly gift was for his burial. His burial. To be buried, he's going to have to be crucified first. So she gives this very costly present for his death. His death. Uh, Christ's death and the implications of Christ's death outweighs this perfume it does it, it outweighs the perfume it, in fact what we see here is kind of the uh, enfleshment of the parable that we see in Matthew thirteen forty four. in Matthew 13 Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and, and hid again and from joy Over it, he goes and sells a little bit of his stuff, right? No, he sells all that he has to buy that one field so that he can have that treasure. The giving up of this perfume is nothing in comparison to what she gets through Christ's death. It's nothing. And while we look at it and we say, wow, this is incredible, what Christ did was even better. And somehow she has grasped this, and the disciples are there eating hummus and and pita bread. And they're like not even aware. Now, as we look at this, we see this unnamed woman. And really, this unnamed woman could be any of us. It's someone who, in gratitude of Christ's death, is willing to give what is most precious to the Lord. In gratitude of Christ's death, she's willing to give what is precious to her. And praise the Lord, we've seen that over and over again throughout history. Individuals willing. The disciples don't learn this until after the resurrection of Jesus and they see Him. And then they're willing to live this way. But up until this point, they're hiding. We see Him. Here she grasps it. She understands it. And this unnamed woman... Here, as Matthew presents, there could be any of us when we decide to give what is precious to us for Christ's death, in gratitude of Christ's death. Now, what we've been looking at this morning is that Christians must reject using God for personal gain and live with a reckless abandonment for God. And we've seen that in this first part that reckless abandonment for God. We've seen how Jesus was reckless. He goes inside this house of this guy by the name. Of Simon the leper uh, we see how he encouraged his disciples to enter into this house we see all this reckless abandonment from this lady uh, you know does she know that the economy was going to collapse in a little bit does she know that Jerusalem was going to be overrun and that people were going to be scattered every which way if she had this perfume maybe she could have sold it and bought herself another house somewhere else it's like she she was reckless she she didn't read Dave Ramsey for nothing uh, she would have known that she should have saved uh, you know, three to six months' worth of savings. And this could have covered that. But she's reckless with her actions in gratitude of Christ's death. But there's another part that Christians must reject using God for personal gain. And that's 14 through 16. It says, then, one of the twelve, and, and how the Greek reads it, it's, it's very interesting because the word order is that they've delayed the fact that it's one of the twelve. It says the then went, and who went? One of the twelve. And the name of Judas Iscariot is delayed even further, which puts, uh, you're anticipating who in the world could be going. And, and, and finally you discover it's Judas. Judas is going. And where is he going? He's going to the chief priest. What? These guys have been criticizing Jesus the whole time. He's going there. What could he be going there for? What what is he going to go do with the chief priest? What could he possibly do? Why why is he not going to stay and eat? What's the matter with him? Why would he leave this intimate setting to go talk with the chief priest? This just doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? And it says, verse 15, uh, and said, it's a very terse way Of expressing that Judas now is going to speak. Usually, more words are added, and then Judas said to them, but the terseness of it gives the idea that he gets straight to the point. It's like he doesn't even have any flowery words or anything. He's just there and he wants to talk, he wants to get down to business. He's going to start doing negotiations. Now, why in the world is he there? There's been different um, ideas that have been presented. Some have presented that maybe, maybe, Jesus, uh, maybe Judas thought that he could kind of broker a deal between the Jewish leadership and Jesus. Maybe he could bring them all to a table, and they could there talk and discuss about things and see that really they worship the same God and, and maybe they're not so against each other. And that's been one theory: is that maybe Judas thought that he could broker a deal. Another thought is that maybe, uh, maybe not broker a deal, but. Judas felt called of God. He was chosen by by God to go betray Jesus. Just like Esther said, for such a time as this, I'm here. Maybe Judas felt that desire too, and he said, I'm called to the Lord to go betray Jesus. And he's going to go fulfill that. Uh, there is another idea that maybe, maybe Judas just got tired. Maybe Judas just got tired of this uh, servant leader the suffering servant. Oh, come on. Let's get over this. We want to see the Son of Man come in glory. And so he thought maybe he could push his hand, that he could reveal his true self, this this Son of Man who comes with all the glory and authority. But no, that's not what Matthew reveals at all. Because what Matthew reveals is that he's asked the question, what are you willing to give me to betray Him to you. What Matthew reveals is that He was a greedy person. And He's willing to give Jesus up for personal gain. Ah, oh, can you imagine? It says there in the text that they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver would have been about a day's wage. Uh, sorry, a month's wage. It would have been about a month's wage. So if we could calculate that out, I, I think it, is it 725 an hour minimum wage here in Texas? I think it's 725. If we calculate all that out to a month, I think that's around 1,160. Um 1,160. For, for 1,160 bucks, Judas betrayed Jesus. After that, he receives that. From that moment on, he's looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now every moment, every place they go, he's looking, he's calculating. Everything now is how can he turn Jesus over. And this desire of the priest to not not do this, all of a sudden the opportunity has risen. And they don't care about the morality of what they're doing. The opportunity, and they're going to take it. They're going to do it. Now, what we see here is that you do what you do because you want what you want. Judas desired money. And I can imagine at the moment of receiving a whole month's salary, a whole thousand one hundred and sixty bucks, it was great. I mean, remember the first time the stimulus checks went out? People were all of a sudden getting money in the bank. People who hated Donald Trump were all like, my president, you know? They loved it, they got a check. And for the moment, you could think, man, i got a whole month's salary right here. What am I going to do? I'm going to go to Chuck E. Cheese first. What is what he going to do with it? But how does $1,160 compare to betraying God? See, we're tempted to betray, to be rebellious against God every day with the desires of our heart. And and for that moment of sin, there's that moment of pleasure when we say, yes. I knew if I did this, I would feel like this. I knew if I engaged in this, it would make me feel so much better. And there's that moment of sin where you're enjoying it, but the payoff is not great, is it? It's not really worth betraying God. It's not really worth being rebellious to God. And in the scheme of things, it's 1160 bucks for being disloyal to God. What can you do with 1000 Can you buy a car? Can you buy a home? Can you buy health with that money? You look at it in that light, and it seems quite pathetic. Yet we do it over and over. Giving the most expensive or taking a little. The two are contrasted, aren't they? Here's this woman. She gives something very costly to Jesus in gratitude. Here is Judas taking very little to gain for Jesus. What a contrast between the two. Now, I think if we were to examine ourselves right now, we would fall into one of the two camps. Either we're living a life in gratitude where we are offering up to God sacrificially to Him or we're looking at God as somehow He's going to benefit us. We're going to use Him. He's going to answer my prayers. I'm going to call down and He's going to do things for me. We're we're living in one or two ways. We're either sacrificially giving in gratitude or we're looking at God as an opportunity for ourselves. Christians must reject using God for personal gain and live with a reckless abandonment for God. You do that by recklessly loving and fellowshipping with the marginalized. You do that by abandoning your treasure for a greater treasure, which is Christ. And you see that personal gain by rejecting God never pays. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we examine this text and examine our lives, there might be someone here that they only look at you as for personal gain. May they think of salvation as, as only them getting out of hell. Or, or maybe they, they've never accepted Christ as their Savior, and I pray now that the Holy Spirit would convict their hearts and that today would be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for those of us who maybe have been taking advantage. We haven't been living a life of gratitude, of surrender, We've been just looking at you to take. Father, I pray that we will live in gratitude and sacrifice and live recklessly for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing a song of invitation.